Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, what to make of the midterms. While the headlines from the November 6th midterm elections focused on the House seats flipped by the Democrats and the Senate seats flipped by the Republicans, we're asking the more important question. What does this election mean for tax policy in 2019 and beyond? So we'll answer that question in two parts, focusing first on the federal level and then moving on to the states. Here to talk about the implications of a return to divided federal government are Tax Notes Today, Capitol Hill reporters Stephen Cooper and Asha Glover. Stephen, Asha, welcome to the podcast. So thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, let's start with a story that came up toward the end of the campaign. It was a discussion of a tax reform 2.0, a 10% middle class tax cut that had not really been discussed before the end of the election. Where are those plans now? Um, So the first thing is that this middle class tax thing came up, what, within the last two weeks before the election. A lot of people were kind of side swiped by that. They didn't see that coming. I mean, Kevin Brady came out and said that he would work on this at the beginning of next year. And clearly that's not going to be the case because he will no longer be Ways and Means chairman. I've heard from some lobbyists that Democrats may have some incentive to do this middle class tax cut, maybe not necessarily the way that the president has talked about it, but some level of middle class tax cut because remember right after Republicans passed tax reform, House Minority Speaker Nancy Pelosi came out and said that the tax cuts for middle class Americans were crumbs. So Democrats have some incentive to kind of reverse that. If these tax cuts are crumbs, then Democrats have some incentive to pass these tax cuts because they criticize the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act so heavily. Well, there are two things you should know about Republican tax policy in the last month or so. One, the president sort of made an off-the-cuff remark at a campaign rally dealing with this 10% tax cut. This caught most of the Republicans on the committee off guards. And two, the phase two, or tax reform 2.0, that they've been talking about for the last three months or so, that was part of also part of a sort of a campaign push to generate more voters, uh, Republican voters, and more interest. But interestingly, if the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was such a great middle class tax relief plan, why do you need a second bill saying let's cut taxes again if that's what they're supposed to have accomplished the first time around? The Phase Two bills were supposed to be making those tax cuts permanent. So once again, if you're making something permanent, why then go back and tell voters we need a second tax cut of 10%? So it didn't make a lot of sense, and I doubt if it's going to go anywhere in the coming months when Democrats take over. Now, President Trump has indicated that he's willing to, to go back to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and potentially raise taxes on corporations uh, in order to pay for a middle-class tax cut. Is that something that the Democrats and the president could see eye-to-eye on and make a deal? That would be pretty cool if they could come to an agreement where they went back into the prior settled law and made a new tax cut by taking away tax relief from a different group of people. That's something that Republicans never, ever wanted to do. So if this happens, it would be a pretty interesting development for the tax world to see Republicans actually vote in favor of raising taxes on more wealthy and raising taxes on corporations to give taxes to so-called middle-income folks. Of course, the main question that leaves is, who are the middle-income people? Congress has never really come up with the answer to that. There's no definition of what qualifies as middle-income. Closest we've got to it was back in the fiscal cliff of 2000, I think, was it 13 or so? 
when uh, former President Barack Obama was saying, well, middle income is anything under 250000 in income, that bill, when it finally passed, fiscal cliff bill, was th- up to 350000 mm-hmm. which is pretty well off, I think. All right. So the current Congress still has a, a little bit of life left in it. Uh, we have lame duck session coming for the end of November and December. What's on the agenda for the current House and Senate? There are a couple of things that could come up. One of the biggest things is extenders. Every December, we kind of had this back and forth over extenders, and generally, they're accepted and written into law. They're kind of tapped onto the year-end budget, so we'll definitely be looking at that. Also, the current budget expires December 7th, so Congress will have to address the budget because if they don't, then the government shuts down. No one really wants that, especially not before Christmas. We're also going to have to deal with technical corrections. So there are a bunch of technical corrections that have to be addressed that came out of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We're not exactly sure which ones will come up, but there are a handful that Democrats may be okay with adding into some type of year in legislation. One of the big ones is the qualified improvement property. There are also net operating losses. And then there was one provision that had to do with sexual harassment payments that could come up. It hasn't really been a big thing, but there has been some interest earlier in the year in addressing that. So we're looking at probably less than 10 technical corrections being addressed, but they could come up just so Democrats can get those things out of the way because there's some bipartisan interest in getting those things resolved. There is also IRS reform is one thing that will come up, but then also we have the IRS budget. The Senate and the House has worked together to get these bills done. Um, They've come to an agreement, but I think the larger package has some outstanding issues, but the IRS part is done. There's also a disaster tax relief bill. There were a lot of natural disasters earlier in the year, in the fall, in September and August. So we're going to have to deal with those because those people need that relief, especially before tax season starts, because it's good to know where you're looking forward to and what credit you can get, especially when you're dealing with the effects of a natural disaster. And I think we should know about the technical provisions are that during the run-up to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, Democrats felt like they were not involved in passing this bill. So as a result, they said, well, if there are technical corrections that need to be made, don't count on us because you didn't count on us to make the problem. Why should we help you out and fix it? Republicans have been saying, well, these are your constituents as well. You have small businesses constituents all over the country. They need help. So there's going to be some argument between the parties over which one should be fixed and when should they be fixed. And I think if I had to predict it, I'd say that Democrats would probably ask for an additional tax incentive for their constituents that they really care about as a price for moving the tax tax and correction stuff. So look for Democrats possibly to ask for something with an earned income tax credit, possibly some other housing credits, possibly uh, some kind of tax provisions that specifically target their districts. Let's circle back to, uh, I guess this is basically a perennial issue is tax extenders. So what provisions of extenders are we looking for in this lame duck session? Earlier this year in the Bipartisan Budget Act, Republicans retroactively extended 34 tax extenders. Those were extended through 2017, but not for 2018. Those will likely come up at the end of the year. Out of those 34, they include tax credits for qualified fuel cell motor vehicles, railroad track maintenance, and a bunch of other tax credits that 
a lot of these industries are looking for that certainty right before the end of the year. So those are likely to come up and be included in some sort of year-end package, likely the budget, but we'll see exactly what vehicle they'll ride on. Okay, so um, among the the energy tax provisions that are in, included in these extenders, what's getting the most attention and, and what's going to happen uh, with carbon taxes? A lot of the energy extenders have kind of just been lumped in those 34. When they say the extenders, people are usually just talking about the 34. But there are also some outliers. There is a coal tax credit that is implemented on coal companies. They pay this and it pays into the Black Lung Disability Fund. This fund is exactly what it sounds like. It helps people, coal miners who have Black Lung. It helps them. It gives them payments. It also gives some of their family members payments. This is set to expire at the end of the year. There hasn't really been much conversation about it. But as you would expect, there are a lot of coal miners who want to see this done because they need these type of payments. If the tax credit expires, it goes back to, I want to say 50 or 55 percent of what the payments are now, which would bankrupt the, the fund at some point. The fund would not be able to pay out nearly as much money as they are currently paying out, which means that some people will be left out in the dark. The other thing, like you mentioned, is we have to figure out what's going to happen with the carbon tax. Democrats have talked about it for a, a long time. Carlos Carbello, who is actually leaving Ways and Means this year, he came out with a carbon tax bill. He's a Republican. As you may expect, a lot of Republicans were not on board with that particular measure. From my conversations that I've had with outside people, we're not looking at a carbon tax for another three to four years. It's a really good thing to say. It's a really good thing to talk about because who doesn't want to help the environment? That's a it's a great talking point. However, at the end of the day, the actual implementation of a carbon tax looks a lot different than, oh, we're just helping the environment. In fact, it will raise a lot of people electricity bills. And people who are lower income are not going to really want to see a carbon tax implemented because they don't want their bills to go up. So it's a good thing in talking points. However, I think the actual implementation really leaves politicians a little bit weary to implement it so soon. So I guess they're trying to figure out how they're going to work through that type of policy to kind of make it a little bit more attractive. Yeah, and I've heard some folks discussing, I think the Labor Secretary has sort of floated the idea that maybe a carbon tax could be a way to fuel infrastructure. That's probably a trial balloon that may not really go anywhere. But they keep bringing carbon taxes up as if it were a real thing. Right now, it's sort of far away from reality. So, Asha, you you mentioned uh, a personnel change on the House Ways and Means Committee. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So who's leaving and who might be joining Ways and Means in the coming Congress? So we're looking at a pretty large number of Republicans leaving the committee. I guess I'll start with the Democrats just because it's only two of them. Joe Crowley is leaving. He lost his primary, so he will not be coming back next year. And Sander Levin is retiring. So Democrats have those two people who are not going to be back, which kind of leaves them in a good position because and they're already looking at adding 25 and 30 Democrats being on that committee. So we're looking at probably about seven incoming Democrats, I think. On the Republican side, they lost a lot of people. There are a bunch of retirements, but then also four Republicans lost their House races. So we are looking at Sam Johnson is leaving, David Reichert, Peter Roscom, Lynn Jenkins, Eric Paulson, Diane Black, Jim Renacci, Christy Nome, Carlos Carbello, and Mike Bishop. So we're looking at a pretty long roster of people who will not be coming back next year. 
from what I've heard is that the Republicans may have to add a few seats just because they're losing so many people, but the bulk of the additions will be on the Democrat side. One Democrat we've heard who may be interested in joining the committee is Gwen Moore. On the Republican side, it hasn't been as loud. You haven't heard as many people who are interested, but I'm sure that there are a lot of people who would like to be on the Ways and Means Committee. It's a very powerful committee, and, you know, people have left that committee and gone into leadership positions, so it's a very attractive position. So I'm sure that there will be people on both sides of the aisle who are very interested in being a part of that committee next year. Right, and what makes this fun to watch is that a lot of the tax staff from the committee, a lot is probably an overstatement, but a few of the major tax staff of the committee left once the tax cutting jobs bill was completed. So there's sort of like a brain drain in the tax committees for the experienced tax staffers. Um, in addition to that, then you have all these members from the Republican side of the ledger also leaving. So it'll be pretty interesting next year to figure out how they rebuild the brain trust going forward to deal with tax policy. Let's move now to the Senate, where notably Senate Finance Committee Chair Orrin Hatch of Utah is leaving of his own accord at the end of this of this Congress. Who are we looking at to replace him on, as chairman? Well, he'd probably tell you he's irreplaceable. <laughs> but it's either going to be Charles Grassley from Iowa, who has been the chair chairman of the Finance Committee a couple of times in the past and can serve for two more years under the Senate Republican rules, or it would be Senator Crapo from Idaho. The smart money is on it being Senator Grassley. However, what that means is that the agenda could focus on oversight of nonprofits. Grassley has made a career out of asking nonprofits to prove that they deserve to have tax-free operations. He has churches, he has schools, educational, like colleges. He asks them, please tell us what you're doing with all the money that you don't pay in taxes. So that could be one area that may come to the forefront if he becomes the, the chairman. Now, who's who might want to get on the committee? Um, there's a few people's names have been kind of floating around. I think you might be seeing Todd Young, who's formerly also in the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, you might be seeing Steve Daines, possibly Tom Tillis. And on the Democratic side, you might see Amy Klobuchar. That committee is uh, interesting to look at primarily because when they determine that they like to get something done, they have to do it in a bipartisan fashion. And so there's a greater chance that Democrats can work with Republicans, despite the fact that there's a narrow majority in the Senate. On the House side, it's not the case. Democrats can basically get what they want done. Speaking of things that Democrats may want to get done, major focus of uh, the Democrats coming into this election was talk about getting the subpoena power and potentially using their new powers in order to see Donald Trump's tax returns. What are the prospects for that in the next year? Well, we've heard from leadership. Nancy Pelosi has said we are going to get these tax returns as soon as possible. They want She wants to start this process immediately. We've also heard from House Ways and Means ranking minority member Richard Neal from Massachusetts, who will likely be the chairman next year. And he said that he is interested in the tax returns, but it's not his day one goal. He has other things that he is wanting to look at first. Retirement policy is one thing that he said. He also wants to hold hearings on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So there's some confliction between these leaders about when we're going to see the tax returns. If Pelosi gets them day one, that also means when do we actually see the tax returns? These are pretty complex tax returns. We're not going to be 
be able to just see them immediately. That's definitely going to take some work. And there's some conversation about does the tax committee even have the capability to look into these tax returns and figure out if there was wrongdoing. So we could definitely be looking at some sort of holdup. The other issue is that we may not ever see these tax returns. President Trump has to be open to allowing people to view them. They have to have his permission. He may not want the American public to see those tax returns. He said multiple times the tax returns are under audit, but president's returns are always under audit. And he has said that he is not willing to release those tax returns until they are finished being audit, which could very well mean that we don't see them until he is no longer president. And why do we need these tax returns after he's no longer president? So there's a bunch of conflicting things about what this process will look like. What I will say is that Democrats beat the drum for these tax returns all last year. As tax reform was happening, they kept saying, where are the tax returns? They were bringing up amendments. They brought up multiple motions on the floor. They have said that this is what they want. So I guess there's also some level of pressure as we have said that this is what we want to do. We voted on this quite a few times, and now we have to follow through on what we said we were going to do. The other thing, and this is something I, I learned last week, is that JCT also has power under 6103, which allows the tax writing committees to see the tax returns. Richard Neal could technically ask JCT to do a report, and they could move forward in that direction as opposed to Ways and Means doing it or Finance Committee, which it's unlikely that Finance Committee will do it because they are Republican-run. We also haven't seen what the Senate will do on on these tax returns. While Republicans will be in control of the Finance Committee, Senate Finance Committee ranking minority Wyden has said that he's been kind of non-committed about what he would do with the tax returns. He said he'll bring it to the committee, but he would like to do it, you know, in a bipartisan way. He would like to see if he needs Republican support to do this. So there are a bunch of different moving parts about how this process will look. And I think because we've kind of had the anticipation for a long time. We now are at this point where we're trying to figure out what direction it goes in, and there are a bunch of directions that it could possibly go in. And I guess the president probably could refuse to give the returns to Congress, but then that might end up going to the Supreme Court over whose authority is more. Is it Does the law give grant Congress the authority to see the returns, and can the president stop it from happening? So that's an issue that also may end up being in the news next year. All right, well, it sounds like there's... A lot of things to keep track of. And now I understand you both are on Twitter, so so plug your Twitter handle so that people can follow all these things as they come. So, Steve, where can listeners find you online? So you can find me at Scoop on Taxes uh, on Twitter. I tweet once or twice a day. I always tweet out stories that we write. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Asha S. Glover. I'm not going to lie. I am, for a millennial, I am very bad at Twitter. So I'm trying to work on it and post more than once a week. So right. bear with me. We'll take what we can get. <laughs> Asha, Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's turn to what happened in the states on November 6th. Joining us by phone is State Tax Today senior reporter Paul Jones. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. Before we begin, I should note for listeners that we're recording this on November 12th, so some of what we're talking about is still up in the air. Paul, what happened in the governor's races? Well, so far, it looks like the Democrats have picked up seven governorships. There is a recount in Florida. Andrew Gillum, the progressive Democrat in that race, has rescinded his concession to Ron DeSantis, the Republican, and it looks close right now, so we're going to have to wait and see what the outcome there is. But we did see Democrats essentially pick up a number of governorships from Republicans, and I don't know specifically what uh, conclusions you can draw from that generally, but it's uh, obviously a fact that voters generally understand that Democratic candidates 
favor more progressive tax policies on average than Republicans. So you can take that for what you will. Well, as I understand it, the the Democrats picked up a governorship in Illinois. Did tax come up uh, during that election? Yes, the race in Illinois is notable because the Democratic candidate, J.B. Pritzker, who is now the governor-elect, he had campaigned in part on a pledge to pursue a progressive income tax in the state. Illinois has a flat income tax, and Pritzker uh, was saying that he would seek uh, a progressive one. That would require a constitutional amendment. It would need to pass by three-fifths in both houses, and it would then have to go before voters. So that was an issue that he focused on in part in his campaign, and his success in that race indicates potentially public support for that. And the gains that the Democrats made, both with the governorship, and I believe they've increased their legislative uh, representation in that state, that indicates that they may actually be able to pursue that, uh, again, if they can win over all of the votes that they would need in the legislature and make a compelling case for the voters to approve it. That'll depend a lot on the specific plan. One thing that was noted during the Illinois race is that Pritzker didn't really outline specifics of uh, the type of plan that he would pursue, just that his goal would be to reduce taxes on lower income earners and increase them on higher income earners in the state. You mentioned earlier the uh, the ongoing recount in Florida. What, what tax questions did the uh, gubernatorial candidates raise there? One of the specific tax issues that came up in Florida, if, if not the specific tax issue, was a proposal by Gillum to increase the state's corporate tax rate from 5.5% to 7.75%. And I believe they had estimated that would raise revenue by about a billion dollars, primarily to fund education spending. I think more importantly, uh, Andrew Gillum was seen as a very progressive candidate. And Florida is a state that does not have particularly high taxes. I think that if Gillum wins, it would be a significant change in the culture or attitude of the governor's administration towards taxes and spending. And that might be more significant than the specific corporate tax proposal by Gillum. However, I should note, and I don't want to tread on uh, anyone's toes here by mentioning ballot measures, but uh, it appears voters approved Amendment 5, and that is a constitutional amendment to require a legislative supermajority for tax increases in Florida. So that might indicate that support for Gillum, again, if he wins, is not necessarily an open door uh, to pursue lots of new progressive tax policies. However, if Ron DeSantis, the Republican, wins, uh, it's likely we're going to see a continuation of outgoing Republican Governor Rick Scott's policies with respect to taxation. DeSantis indicated that he supported uh, opposing newer and higher taxes. One of the races where Republicans were successful this year was in Massachusetts. Uh, Were taxes an issue in that election? Yes. A source or two that I spoke with indicated that uh, Democrats' gubernatorial candidate Jay Gonzalez's support for a millionaire's tax and a tax on private universities had played a role in that race and that there was some potential for it to be not necessarily a referendum on that proposal, but uh, an indicator of voters' support or opposition. And, of course, Governor Charlie Baker, the Republican, won re-election. There was going to be a millionaire's tax proposal on the ballot, but it was struck down by the court. The failure of uh, Gonzalez to win at least won't 
provide additional support for the idea of a millionaire's tax in that state. Now, in, in some of these cases, does it appear that voters were rendering judgment on past tax policies that were implemented? Of course, it's hard to say. Voters uh, were likely considering a lot of different issues. But it does look like in uh, Maine, the Democrat candidate, Janet Mills, who's the state's attorney general, she defeated uh, Sean Moody, the Republican candidate. And that means she's going to replace the outgoing governor, Paul LePage, who was a big advocate of tax cuts and, in fact, had even uh, said that he wanted to eliminate uh, the state's income tax. And, of course, as we covered, uh, LePage also said that he's uh, potentially going to move to Florida to avoid uh, income taxes. So it's possible that there's an indication there that voters wanted a change in direction with respect to tax policy. Also mentioned to me by a source was the the race in Kansas, and that turned out with Democrat Laura Kelly winning against the Republican candidate, Chris Kobach. And there were some who had said that that race was in part a referendum on the outgoing governor's tax policies. That's Sam Brownback, who had uh, pursued tax cuts. And yeah, from the uh, the people I spoke with, that race definitely had people thinking that they wanted to take a different direction with respect to taxes in the state. Where else did we see uh, interesting gubernatorial races? I may be prejudiced because I regularly cover it, but I thought Alaska's race was interesting. We talked about the Democrats' successes capturing uh, governorships in a couple of states, but the outcome of the Alaska race could be seen as sort of a Republican pickup. The current governor, Bill Walker, was an independent who had to deal with uh, deficits during his time in office because of the bottoming out of oil prices. And one of the policies that he pushed in response to that was to create some sort of a broad-based tax, first an income tax and then later on a head tax in Alaska. He ultimately had to bow out from his re-election bid, and that left the race between the Republican candidate, Mike Dunleavy, and the Democratic candidate, and uh, ultimately Dunleavy won. And so even though Walker was an independent, not a Democrat, and a former Republican, uh, he represented more of a sort of progressive, traditional Democratic platform when it came to tax policy, and Dunleavy's victory could be seen as a potential rebuke to that. I think I should also point out that the election in Nevada involved, to some extent, a referendum on a gross receipts tax that had been supported by the Republican governor of that state, Brian Sandoval, uh, who is outgoing. The uh, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Steve Sisolak, beat Adam Laxalt, the Republican candidate. Laxalt, I think, had backed off of a pledge to potentially reduce or repeal the gross receipts tax in the state, but he had backed a no new taxes agenda, and he was beaten by uh, Sisolak regardless. So you can take that for what you will, but it seems like uh, Governor Sandoval's legacy with respect to the uh, the gross receipts tax is likely secure in Nevada. All right. Well, Paul, thank you for that update, and uh, thank you for being here. That was my pleasure. Thanks. Now, to give us an update on state ballot measures, we're joined by State Tax Today reporter Lauren Laricchio. Lauren, welcome back. Thanks for having me. What were some of the issues in the state ballot measures this year? Well, there were a lot of different issues this year. They considered um, proposals to legalize and tax recreational marijuana, impose supermajority requirements for tax increases, raise gas taxes, increase payroll taxes, and raise funding for education through tax increases. Were there any overall patterns to the way these votes came out? 
So the results were mixed, but it looks like voters were mostly in favor of lowering taxes and they didn't want their taxes to increase. Despite the overall anti-tax sentiment, there were some exceptions. Voters in California approved measures to increase local sales and business taxes and rejected tax-cutting measures. In Utah, voters approved Proposition 3 to increase the state sales tax to pay for expanded Medicaid coverage. Where did voters land on some of the other major ballot measures? In Washington state, voters rejected a carbon fee initiative. If it had been approved, the state would have become the first to impose a carbon tax. In North Carolina, voters approved a measure to lower the limit on income tax increases from 10% where it is right now to 7%. This one was pretty controversial. Ultimately, the NAACP lost a legal battle to remove the question from the ballot. In Colorado, voters rejected Amendment 73 to raise funding for education by raising the corporate income tax, property taxes, and taxes for people who earn more than $150,000 a year. I spoke with Meg Waihe at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, and she said although the Colorado measure didn't pass, there was a pretty substantial increase in support for a progressive income tax, and it looks like supporters will continue to push for tax increases to raise money for education in the upcoming session. Now, what do the results mean for the upcoming legislative sessions? Jonathan Williams at the American Legislative Exchange Council told my colleague Paige Jones that the overall results signal to legislators that there's a lack of desire to raise taxes. But why he disagreed with that, she thinks next year is going to create a lot of opportunity for more equitable tax policy and reform. And she said using the ballot box isn't the best way to pass fiscal policy because some ballot questions can be misleading and confusing to voters. We're expecting next year to be very busy, so we'll have to wait and see what happens. All right. Well, we'll have to check in with you uh, later in the year. Uh, Lauren, uh, where can listeners find you online? They can find me on Twitter at Lauren Lauricchio. That's spelled L-A-U-R-E-N-L-O-R-I-C-C-H-I-O. Excellent. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Jack Miles reviews recently proposed regulations on qualified opportunity funds, and Jay Starkman provides suggestions on how the IRS could be restructured and explains why it needs more funding. In state tax notes, Brett Carter and Brian Straley examine Tennessee's sales tax refund process in light of the U.S. Supreme Court's Wayfair decision, and Michael Carl discusses natural gas property tax appeals pending before the West Virginia Supreme Court. And in Tax Notes International, Lucy Lee discusses the IRS's ability to deny U.S. passports to applicants with significant tax debt, and practitioners from Simmons & Simmons in Luxembourg examine how the country uses tax incentives to attract highly skilled workers. You can read all that and a lot more in the November 19th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And hey, if you like what we're doing here, it'd be great if you could leave us a rating or a review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk.
Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.